you have a copy of the scriptures this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 2. We finished up our series, at least for now, in the Gospel of Mark last week. And so for the next little while, we're going to be looking through the Psalms. Um, You might know this, you might not. Uh, I think I've taken two days of vacation so far this year. And so I'm going to try to take a block of time in December. And so Todd's going to be preaching. And in uh, Advent season, thinking about the coming of Jesus and his birth. Um, So we're trying to tag team and I'm trying to team them up to talk about Jesus as king. So we're going to be looking through the Psalms over the next number of weeks and thinking about Christ as king in preparation for Todd in December and what he will bring. And so that's why we're looking at the Psalms. If you're really interested, we plan on going through Philippians starting in January. That should run up to about Easter. Then I'm toying with the idea of either going through Ecclesiastes to lead us up through the summer or doing Ecclesiastes in the summer. And then um, perhaps in the fall we're going to do this series on uh, what does life with the Lord Jesus look like? What does that look like? And so those are kind of my thoughts I'm relaying to you about what, where we're going over this next 12 months. So still praying, still thinking, but those are just some of the ideas I'm toying with. So, but this morning we've got Psalm 2, so let's look together at this psalm. I'm going to read it to you. And as I read this to you, I want you to realize that this psalm gives you a broad scope of all of history. You might not be interested in history at all. Well, God wants you to be. And he's given you a snapshot. All of history is in these 12 verses. So get ready. It's a lot to cover in 12 verses. You know that. Listen to this. This is God's word. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me... I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, we are here now starting this series of the Psalms, and... Lord, we only have a few weeks to spend in, the, in this glorious book, so we ask that you would um, work in our hearts, help us to understand how you are in control, and may we see that the Lord Jesus is king, may we recognize his glory, may we honor him. Jesus, we ask that you would come and subdue our hearts, that's what you do as king. You not only defeat our enemies, but you overcome and defeat us. You subdue us to yourself. So we pray that you would do that this morning. 
and that we would know that you are our king and we would serve you this week. We pray this for your glory's sake, Jesus. Amen. This psalm begins with settled opposition. Did you notice that? It begins with firm opposition. You might even want to call it anger. You might even want to say that someone is upset. This anger, this settled opposition is directed toward God. Listen to how the psalm begins. The nations are raging. The peoples are plotting in vain. The kings of the earth are setting themselves The rulers are taking counsel, and they're setting themselves and taking counsel against God. It's true. There is settled opposition against God, and in particular, against his anointed. That's what the text says. The anointed one of God is the Messiah. The anointed one means Messiah. Here we have People. Here we have kings, here we have nations that are setting themselves against God and in particular against his anointed. And the whole desire, the whole reason for this opposition is to try to get rid of any connection with God's authority. The whole reason for this settled opposition is to disconnect from God, disconnect from his rule, disconnect From the fact that he's God. Now, lest we think that this psalm is actually about everyone else, we need to stop and pause and think. Because this psalm is really about us. This psalm is about us. You see, we all have a sense that we need a king. You know that? We all have a sense that we need a king. As a matter of fact, there are even people that we live with. This might even be you who are somewhat obsessed with the idea of royalty. Think William and Kate. There are those who are obsessed with the idea of a king and royalty. All of us want a champion. We want someone who is a powerful figure who not only has an overarching idea of what's going on in the world, but in particular has this protective bent for our relationship in the world and to the world. We all have a sense that we need a king. Think about the stories that you like, whether you're a Marvel person or a DC person. Superhero is nothing more than a synonym for a king, isn't it? A champion, right? Those of you that may enjoy sports, in our minds we have a tendency to crown our favorite athlete. We observe the power that they have. We observe the prowess they have, the athletic prowess that they have. We want to do what they do. We want to go where they go. We want to wear what they wear. We have a sense that we need a king. Whether you love the Chronicles of Narnia, whether you love Lord of the Rings, Whether it's the return of the king, whether it's the Aslan figure, we have a sense that we need a king. The truth is, is that we really like the idea of God, but if we scratch the surface and get a little bit below this this facade of, of, of liking God, we will find very quickly That even though we have a sense that we need a king, we might even have a sense that we like the idea of God. When you scratch below the surface, 
we actually really struggle with the God of the Bible. We actually wrestle with God. You see, we like the idea of a supreme being. As a matter of fact, it's written on all of our hearts. You can't ever really escape it. But our view of God is oftentimes this. We have really squishy views of the future. We have really squishy views of the afterlife. We think of God as someone who just needs to, you know, uh, uh, do what I want. Our idea of God is that he's here just to make me feel good. We have a sense that, yes, this idea of God is important, but we think that he should punish evil. But he should also make sure that he rewards all of my goodness. We have this sense that, well, God is really big and he might be powerful, but if he's not making me feel good, I'm not sure that I want anything to do with him. If he's not rewarding my goodness, then there's a problem. You see, we like this idea of God, but when, this, when the God of the Bible begins to have opinions about my life, when the God of the Bible has opinions about the way I should live, when he has opinions about my identity, when he has opinions about my money, when he has opinions about what I'm going to do with my time, then we start having a problem. This idea of God actually shows that we just end up wanting to I don't know, wrestle, fight, oppose the God of the scriptures. I was in a restaurant a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I had placed a to-go order, and I was, uh, I was picking up that to-go order. And there was, uh, bless her heart, there was, one, uh, there was one waitress, and she was responsible for the whole store. I felt so, uh, had compassion for her. It's hard when there's turnover at restaurants and people leave and, and bless her heart, she was there by herself manning virtually the whole store except the two cooks that were in the back. And I was there waiting to pick up my, my, uh, my to-go order and uh, these uh, folks came to the counter to check out and they, uh, they received their bill and they, they paid their bill and they walked out and she was hot. She was really upset. And she walked around the front of the store and went to the back and cleaned up the trash, went to the back uh, and entered the kitchen from the back part of the store and came in there. And I heard her talking to the cook and she said, they had a $27 tip, they had a $27 bill and they didn't tip anything. And the cook looked at her and said, probably the most intriguing comment, he said, that tip's never going to be enough. We always need more. We always want a bigger tip. Well, that made her a little more upset, so she walked out, and she said, it's karma. It's going to come back. I just need to stay focused. This is karma. They did this to me. It's going to come back to them. Isn't that an accurate description of the world in which we live in? Isn't that an accurate description of our hearts most of the time? We want God to bless our goodness, but we don't want God to have too much of an opinion on my life. I want to live my life just basically, you know, if I do the right thing, then good things are going to happen. And if I do bad things, then bad things are going to happen. 
See, this is our attitude toward God. This is actually how we show that we don't want Jesus as king. Yes, there are those that are just outright in opposition to Jesus. It's true. May even be some of you here. It's true. There are those that just oppose the Lord Jesus Christ and just tell you flat out. They'll just say God is not great. There are those who would even say that Christianity is actually harmful. Perhaps you've read some of this before. Christianity is harmful. Um, There's someone who said, there's something infantile about thinking somebody else has the responsibility to give my life meaning and to say that there's a point to my life. You know these things, but you realize that's not the only way that we show opposition to Jesus and to God, is it? That's not the only way. As a matter of fact, you might recognize this. This doesn't come from, or this doesn't originate with me, but it certainly has helped me. Think about this in our showing our opposition to the Lord. Do you believe that you're a pretty good person? As you sit here this morning, do you believe that you are a pretty good person? Think about it. Are there lots of areas in your life, maybe just a few areas of your life, where you would say, you know what, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm a pretty good person. I've got pretty good things going on in my life. If God were to show up right now, do you think, do you believe that God would let you into heaven just because you're pretty good? Do you believe that if God were to show up right here and, and, and if he were to ask, should I let you into heaven? Do you believe that you would say, yes, I'm, I'm pretty good? Sure, I'm not perfect. Sure, I've got things in my life that I need to change, but, but I've got a lot of pretty good things going on. Maybe you think, well, I'm better than some. I'm certainly not better than everybody, but I'm better than some people. You see, if you think that you're a pretty good person, if you think that there are pretty good things about you, then what ends up happening is, is that you end up using your goodness to keep Jesus from you. If you think you're a pretty good person and do pretty good things, and you would acknowledge you're not better than everybody, but you're better than some, that goodness that you have actually functions as a buffer between you and the Lord Jesus. Your goodness is what keeps him away from all of you. Your goodness is what keeps Jesus away so that you don't have to really submit to him, really depend upon him for everything. You just think of him perhaps as a little add-on. You need him a little bit. You need his grace to put you over the edge. You see, that's the way that we rebel against God and we show that we want nothing to do with Jesus as king. We like to take our goodness and use it to protect us from being dependent and submitting completely to the Lord Jesus Christ. We show our opposition not only by overt rebellion. We show our fighting the king and resisting the king also by clinging to our goodness and wanting to keep it. But you realize from the text that God is unfazed, right? He sees all this going on and he says, 
He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. God is unfazed. He is not moved. He's not shocked. As a matter of fact, he is unimpressed. It doesn't faze him at all. God has a mission. God has started his kingdom, and his kingdom is invincible. He has given the nations to his son. He has given the nations to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his decree, that he owns everything and that Christ is in control over everyone and everything, that nothing can stop his kingdom from spreading. Oh, that we were infected with this decree of God. I wish that we were more infected with believing that he was in absolute control and that he's given everything to the Lord Jesus Christ. Oftentimes, perhaps I just speak for myself. Oftentimes, we use the United States as a measuring stick for God's success. And it's so sad. Because it's so minuscule and so tiny in comparison to what he's doing all over the world. And we show our arrogance in thinking, well, things aren't going great here, perhaps, if you're of that bent. And we think, well, God's not doing anything in the world. And that's not true at all. God has a plan and he is executing that plan. You see, we can't shake off the truth that we ultimately can't have anybody else but the Lord Jesus Christ. No one can ever ultimately shake off the Lord Jesus as king. This psalm makes it abundantly clear. It's not that we are on neutral ground coming to this text. Our lives are on one of two trajectories, and both of them dead end with Jesus. There are those who throw off and want to throw off all responsibility to him, but in the end... They will have to deal with Jesus and they will perish forever. That's what the text says. Kiss the son lest he be angry, verse 12, and you perish in the way. And there are those whose lives are on the trajectory of honoring Christ as king and recognizing that he's king. But you cannot, we cannot shake off the Lord Jesus Christ as king. It's very clear. As a matter of fact, it's even bolder than that. God is making an invitation. God is inviting each of us. He is inviting each of us, look at verse 12, to kiss the Son. This is the call of the gospel. This is the message of the gospel. Come and kiss the Son. Submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Acknowledge that he is Lord. Acknowledge that you want, at times, nothing to do with him. Acknowledge that you want to hold on to your goodness and use that as a buffer so that you don't have to submit to him or that you don't have to be completely dependent upon him. The call of the gospel is to come and submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Submit all that you are to Christ because he has all power and he has all authority and all the nations are his. This is the message of Christianity. This is the message of the gospel. That Christ is Lord and that Christ is King. And we must kiss him and submit to him. One of the hardest things for us to come to grips with is that we must give ourselves to the right thing. You know that in your own lives? 
And as you're young, you don't think a lot about giving yourself to something. You think a lot about getting. You know, when, when you're a child, and those of you that are young children, and you have to deal with your parents, you're learning, depending on what age you are, you are learning more and more about how your parents are not perfect. Now they might really make you upset, how they might anger you, how they might do things that you don't like that you think are wrong. As a child growing up, you have to learn how to give yourself to your parents. You have to learn how to communicate with them. You have to learn that they are not perfect. Some of you may not figure that out till you're 25. Some of you may not even figure that out today, and you have parents in your 80s. You have to give yourself to things. When you get a little bit older, you have to give yourself to things. If you prefer to be married, you have to give yourself to someone, and that is hard. You can't just have an arrangement where you're married and you do your thing and your spouse does theirs. You have to literally give yourself to them. You have to give your mind and you have to give your body and you have to give your emotions. And even if you're not married and you have friends, like if you actually have friends that, you know, you get to go deep with and don't just try to live on the surface with. If you have real friends, you have to give yourself to them. You have to give of your time. You have to give of your emotional energies. It's true. And then if you have children, oh, yes, you have to give yourself to them. You have to give yourself to them. And that's not easy. That's hard. That means that you have to say no to certain things and yes to other things. It means you have to rearrange your time. It means that you have to admit that you're wrong. It means you have to give yourself to them. And that's hard. In your jobs and in your professions and in your callings, you have to give yourself to your job. It's one of the hardest things we have to learn is that we have to give ourselves to the right thing. And we get a glimpse of it through being a child. We get a glimpse of it through being a spouse. We get a glimpse of it through being a best friend. We get a glimpse of it through having children. But the truth is we must be giving ourselves to the right thing. We were made. God has created us to live in submission to him. And because of our sin, which shows up all over the place, we want to throw off his authority, we want to do our own thing, or we want to tack on a little God into our lives. And God says, you must give me everything. He says, come and kiss the son. Now, beloved, the, beauty thing, the beautiful thing about this is that when God says, come and kiss the son, I want you to realize that the cheek that you are asked to kiss is the cheek that was slapped and beaten and bloodstained. The cheek that you were asked to kiss and submit to is the one who willingly endured all of the punishment for all of our rebellion. The one who died for all of our goodness that we think is so good that keeps us from him. That's the cheek that we get to kiss. Isn't that amazing? And what you will find is that if you kiss the son and you submit to him and you acknowledge him as your king, this is what you will find. 
you will find that submission actually becomes worship. What you'll find in your lives is that loving him actually reveals being loved by him. What you will find if you submit to him is that serving actually becomes a blessing. What you will find is that giving actually becomes a privilege. What you will find is that to lose your identity, to lose yourself, is to find your new self and your new identity in Christ. Righteous and forgiven and a child of the King. To submit to him means that you give up control and what you will find is actually rest and blessing. And beloved, that brings us right to the table. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, the night that Judas led the little cadre, the little militia, into the garden to seize him and take him. On that night, just a few hours before that, Jesus was with his disciples. And as he was with them, they celebrated a meal together. And during that meal, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread represents my body which is broken for you.